What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What is John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Theology Answers. My name is James, and with me is Edward Dalcor, and we are your host for this podcast. We're glad you're here today, and we're thankful that you continue to stick with us as we continue in this process of doing better each week in our podcast. We are a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community, and you can find other information about our podcast at theologyanswers.com. Today we have a somewhat controversial topic, and the only reason that it's controversial is because there are so many people who seem to be very upset when we talk about things like the altar call and decisions for Jesus, because in our world today, we have had a long historical run, per se, with decisions for Jesus where we have an entire culture of so-called converted Christians, evangelicals, and yet there is very, very few people in the confines of our church today and the churches of America that even have a good gospel answer. So Brother Edward and I are going to talk about decisional regeneration. We're going to talk about altar calls. We're going to talk about the sinner's prayer and things of that nature. So really, it's a podcast about evangelism and evangelistic methods. But as we get started today, we really need to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that the Scripture calls the gospel? And what is it that the Scripture calls us to understand is effectual in response to the gospel. You know, in our day, we have a lot of uh, practices when it comes to evangelism, and most people think it might be biblical. For example, you see the the practice of uh, people who would get up at the end of a service and say, do you want to know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? If you do, come on down, and people will come on down, and the next thing you know... Um, everybody's being declared saved because they came down. Or maybe they came to the place where they repeated a prayer that the pastor or the evangelist had them do. And then after they repeated that prayer, he'll say, now, did you mean it? Were you sincere? Do you believe God can save you? Do you believe he did? Did you want him? Did you ask him to? And all this sort of pressing into making decisions for Jesus. That's what we talk about when we're going to talk on this podcast about the, the altar call ministry or the altar call methods and the sinner's prayer methods. 
etc. But as we get started, let me give you just a little bit of the history of that. It's actually not a biblical expression. It's not a biblical practice at all. And though there may be some proof text that we'll talk about in a minute that may seem that way, we're going to show you where this actually got started. Back in the mid let's just say the mid-19th century, the later to mid-1800s, there was a man by the name of Charles Finney. And Charles Finney was one of these guys that could not make it in the mainstream of ministry. He was rejected at the seminary. He was rejected at the, the, you know, in the different councils of his day uh, amongst pastors. And he decided that God had called him anyway to the work of evangelist, to the work of a pastor. And so he began to start doing some things and practicing some things that we would call modern-day evangelism. And we would use these practices as a culture from that time until present day. And when Finney started, he is one to be known, and actually this is not an opinion, you can read his writing. I believe he wrote something called Revival and Revivalism. And uh, Brother Edward, if there's other writings that pop off the top of your head, please interject them. Uh, But in, in... in all, all in all, what Finney did is he decided that the best way to have revival was to draw a circle on the ground and to pray that God would save anyone who stood in that circle and first and foremost to start with oneself. And so in his writing, he would say something like that. He would also concede to the fact that if man would do something in response like this, such as coming to the, quote, altar, is what he called that area up front, that God would be on the hook for salvation, that if a man would just come, that God would then save. He also was the first to employ the idea that if there wasn't really an emotional movement of the Spirit of God, that that man could do something to change that, that if man could produce the environment or the ambiance or atmosphere that could crack into the spirit of a man or the heart of a man, then the Holy Spirit could get in and do his work. And one of the re- one of the ways he made that possible, or so he said, is that he would get people who were plants inside of his evangelistic meetings. And these people were those who had already, in their own words, experienced salvation and accepted the salvation of Christ. And they would come, and during the certain time of his altar call, he would tell them, if things weren't moving, for them to step out and to begin to weep and to put on an act so that others would feel the drawing of God. And then, even better, why don't you bring your sinner neighbor, or the guy standing to your left or right, with you. Come down with the brother. And so those things and those practices came into the, you know, the early 20th century into the outreach of D.L. Moody and then eventually into the, into the practice of Billy Graham. Now, we're not here to talk negatively about any of these men, but we are going to speak very candidly during this podcast about these practices as they are compared to the commands of Scripture and to the narrative and the instruction of the New Testament so that we can even see historically whether or not they are commanded. And then some people say, well, it doesn't matter, they're effectual. But I would really want you to have an open mind as you listen to this. We're going to show that they possibly do more harm than good, and that if people do come to faith through these practices, it is in spite of them, not because of them. And so when we see our day, uh, and Brother Edward, you can talk for weeks and weeks on this issue because for over sure. a decade you you spoke – I mean you, you've um, 
was a, were a part of an evangelistic ministry that practiced these things. So I'll turn this over to you now, that little mini history lesson, and I'll let you talk about that. And then also talk to us about some areas in the Scripture where people would say it is a practice that we should do in the church. Right, right. Um, yeah, Ch- Charles... Uh, Charles Finney did a great injustice to the church by um, developing something that was um, actually he he took that that mourner seat practice, which um, before him people would practice um, this this whole methodology. I think in the mid 1700s, where people would sit on a, a pew for hours waiting for salvation to come. And uh, interesting, according to eyewitnesses, there were so many false conversions that were just completely multiplied. Well, Charles Finney did, he developed this, uh, further the system and he had something that was actually called the anxious seat. And he developed a theological system, uh, surrounding the anxious seat and where, where, um, uh, the gospel so-called was, was preached to the people. And then all those who were willing to be on the side of Christ were, mm. were called to be, to baptize, and then he placed these people on the what's called the anxious seat, as he called it, for a public manifestation, their declaration of Christians. And then, of course, he made many enemies of this uh, innovation. But it was practice, and it was a psychological technique that manipulated people to make a um, more of a false or premature profession of faith. And yes, I was in these... The, an altar call ministry for gosh almost 10 years and of course when I first got on it I didn't understand the the biblical defects of altar call or sinner's prayer you know and I didn't know who Charles Finney was but it's really interesting that you mentioned you mentioned Billy Graham Charles Finney um one thing about Charles Finney, we have to understand his baseline theology and he wrote a systematic theology I mean he wrote a lot and his baseline theology was really the 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 catalyst or the engine that motivated him to teach these things he denied original sin he right. denied justification through faith alone yes. so clearly a sinner's burnt altar call um as we'll talk about james the whole concept is based on someone who's not really dead who has the ability to do something good before god right and that's and that's what it's always been based on from you know from Billy Sunday to Billy Graham to Bill Bride to D. A. Moody and all these guys. It's the same thing, you know. It's the same baseline theology. Mm-hmm. And today, um, many use the same passages that were used uh, that were used back then. But even before we get in the passages, we have to understand simply this: before the 18th century, and even even that that. Uh, mourner seat in the 1700s before that nobody did modern day altar calls nobody practiced what we call today as a sinner's prayer right so as you can see it's a very modern day um intervention uh, intervention and also as we mentioned as we talked about before from abraham all the way to paul from paul to christians today the requirements of salvation, the method of justification has not changed. It has not changed with Adam. It has not changed with Abraham, That's with right. David, with Paul, with Luther, with us. That's right. It's justification through faith alone. And, of course, the proponents of the sinner's prayer typically point to 
let's see Matthew 7, 7 following and Luke 18, 13 through 14. And of course, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then Revelation 3.20 to make their case. But none of these in any way, shape, or form resemble uh, any form or teach or reflect on a traditional altar call or sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to go through a couple of Matthew 7 uh, through 8. Ask and it will be given. Mm-hmm. The ask is a, a, a present imperative. Ask, you know, it's a commandment and it will be given. Future indicative, it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And Jesus says, for everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, uh, finds, and to him who knocks, will be open. Well, it sounds like, it sounds very uh, altar call-ish, doesn't it? You know, you ask, yeah. you know, sinner's prayer, and, and all these things. But what, but what is the, fam- the, the fundamental problem with equating this with altar calls? Right. Well, for starters, we, we see the we see the reason why you can't equate it. It's in verse one of chapter starting chapter five. This is the Sermon of the Mount. And it says when Jesus saw the crowds he went up to the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Yep. Saying then he goes to the whole Sermon of the Mount and here's this is the problem. He's speaking to believers. He's not speaking to unbelievers. Now we see at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount that, that there was big crowds. However, um, he was, just because there was crowds there, it doesn't mean they were the object of his teaching. His teaching was to the disciples. That's right. Just read verse 1 of, of uh, chapter 5. And look at the content, you know, what you were the light of the world um, in 514, 6-9, pray this way in 616, whenever you fast. This is all to believers, not to non-believers. So this cannot be applied to sinners, you know, or to, to non-believers. Uh, Romans 10-9, let's look at that, you know, um, where uh, if you confess with your, uh, if you confess with your mouth, or if you confess that Jesus as Lord, right, and believe that he was raised from the from among the dead, um, you will be, you will be saved. Well, there's a, a few issues with that. Um, they would look at the confession with your mouth. Um, the problem with that first, the, the word confess is homologeo, mm-hmm. which mean literally to say the same speak. And it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. That confession isn't, it's more than just a verbal manifestation. Now, it could result in a verbal manifestation, but it's an inward uh, confession with everything you have. Right. And if you're going to say that this is a formula for salvation, then what you're saying is anyone who does not have the ability to speak like a mute, mm-hmm. there's no hope for him. Right. And also note the normal verbs for prayer. Um, there's two of them. I think it's proskukomai uh, uh, and uh, uh, diomai. They're not even in this passage. Right. They're not in 9 and 10. Versus, instead, we have homologeo, which signifies a confession, not to pray, not a prayer. Right. It's a confession. It's very important for folks to know that. Right. He, it's it, not this a is verbal, not a prayer. It's not a verbal statement at all. No, it, it's, it's, it's really to believers, right. <laughs> you know. And, and also to believe is also distinct from confession. So 
you know, to, to try to use that in some way outside of the, the context of Romans 8, 9, and 10, it just doesn't fit because he's not prescribing a prayer. And the confession and the belief and so on and so forth, these are, are believers. You know, if you believe, if you confess, only ones who are regenerated would actually do that. And again, it's not a prayer. The word prayer, the normal verbs for prayer is not even in there. And the last one, before we look at the defects of the altar call sinner's prayer, is um, how about Revelation 3.20? Mm. Easy one. Yep. Uh, sta- I stand at the door. You know, we all have that little picture on, on top of our doormat. Yeah, I had it. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, he'll open the door and I, I will come into him and, and we'll dine with him and he's, and, and he with me. Well, problem is, um, that's the believers. That's the Christians. The church will be able to see a revelation chapter three. That's not, so it's just completely refutes the idea of a non-believer confessing. Um, because the fact of the matter is Jesus is saying to all Christians by way of extension, I'm standing at your door and I'm always knocking. This is the believers though. It was a church of Laodicea. So, you know, to say this is a sinner's prayer. Well, no, this is to believers. Right. And, you know, so, and I think these are the main ones. And again, uh, none of those verses work. None of those verses are tantamount or even equate any resemblance to a sinner's prayer. And number two, again, there's no altar call, no sinner's prayer. In other words, as I'll point out later, it's a non-biblical activity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because as you spoke and just brought those verses to light, all the all the years of rehearsal that I had, and I use rehearsal because it is a show. It is something you're taught to do as an act uh, to present to people. And it all, it all really comes to a bottom line of a lack of biblical understanding, a lack of, and I know this is going to seem harsh when I say it, but a lack of regenerate people teaching and preaching and people who do not hold Scripture to a high authority. And if you look all the way back to the days of Finney, and I know we seem to be picking on him, but he's the father, he's the grandfather of this whole mess in some sense in America. But Finney's ideas came through the very nature that he was rejected by his his ordination council. He was rejected by the pastors and the clergy of his day. They would not allow him into seminary, and they would not allow him to preach. So he decides, then I'll do my own thing. And the, the, the book that he wrote that I couldn't remember a minute ago is called The New Measures. The New Measures. Mm-hmm. And what it, what it basically does is, just like you said, from the premise, that's really good, brother, from the premise of his Pelagian theology, which, mean, which, which means he believes that man is inherently able to approach and to receive divine instruction when Paul says what? That it's not possible that the natural man is hostile to God, no one seeks after God, and that the that man's freedom and the freedom of his choices, which would go against what Paul teaches and what John teaches and what Jesus teaches in John six, are the is what is effectual in a man's regeneration. Not the spirit, not the word of God, but in the man's regeneration. So it all boils down to this idea right. of that we don't these people who started this and people beyond them have just been taught it rather than actually studying right. the scriptures and having it revealed to them. They follow a practice of practical 
application that's not even found in the Bible. And when we get to the end of the road, just like you said, it, it's really a bad hermeneutic. It's a bad interpretation of Scripture, not even understanding right. the genre of a letter and its intended audience. So that's that might be a podcast for future to talk about how to understand right. the general idea of reading Scripture. scripture. Do you know who first? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. Do you know who first coined the word "sinner's prayer"? Um, I don't know. You know, because as we're talking, you know, I, the, the "sinner's prayer" is really interesting because when you look at an altar call, when you hear the altar call and participate, practice an altar call and the "sinner's prayer," what you find is really. The sinner's prayer are not really the words of the unbeliever. It's the words of the minister, which are being repeated by the non-believer. Right. So it's really the the minister's prayer that's being repeated. Right. That's know. correct. In 2004, brother, I had um, come to the conclusion that I did not see this as a as a biblical practice. So I stopped using it. But at the same time, and we can talk about this toward the end of the show today, at the same time, I still offered some opportunity for people to come up for counsel and discussion on the issue of salvation, etc. But it was during a sermon, and I get through with this sermon, and I say, we're going to do something different today, and I'm not going to walk anyone through any type of prayer or any type of coming forward. And I didn't really know what to call anything because it was all new to me. It was just under the conviction of the Spirit of God through the hearing of the Word and my study in Scripture. And I said, but here's what I feel like. I said, many of you feel like you're saved because you spoke the right words. And Harry Potter movies and books were just coming out. And I said, that's just, just sort of like witchcraft to me. And I think that you need to recognize it's not the incantation of the right words that causes you to be born again, but it's the Holy Spirit of God. And that caused me a lot of grief, <laughs> just to be, to be frank. It caused me a lot of grief. There, was, there were many meetings after that. You can't equate somebody's salvation prayer with witchcraft, but I do. I really do, because that's where people put that. To, oh, did I say the right words? Yes, you did, so you're saved. We declare you a child of God now. So. Right. Wow. You know, in, 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 in re, and, and really, in response to the lack of biblical proof, some proponents of the sinner's prayer, altical, will argue just because it's not in Scripture or just because it's a recent method, that doesn't really make it invalid or wrong, which I say true. Yeah. But the real concern is not so much the lack of historical evidence, you know, it, it, that it's something recent. Right. Um, you know, the, thus being uh, non-biblical rather than unbiblical, contrary to scripture. Um, uh, and and it, it's not that. It's just that we would see it's not merely a non-biblical thing, but it's the unbiblical implications of the sinner's prayer that, that's at heart of the issue. And, and this, there is a difference between something non-biblical and unbiblical. Right. In other words, there are some things non-biblical that may not necessarily be wrong, but the implications of the sinner's prayer is right. unbiblical, something that opposes Scripture. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I made that. I made that point today in, in my theology class this afternoon, and it's uh, it, it's tough for people to swallow. And the reason it is is because there's so many people that have a, a, a tender affinity with their salvation experience. 
And years ago, and we, we've probably talked about this on previous podcasts, and we'll use this type of phraseology in the future, but America, a dear friend of mine told me years ago that the United States of America and the, the so-called, quote, Church of America has a love affair with their salvation experience. And that means that, that what, just like I, I was, my, my oldest daughter is really into genealogy, and she's built our family tree to about 400 people down, down to the 1500s. And uh, it's, it's really neat to see her do all this work. And as she was asking me questions over the weekend about this great-grandmother or this uncle and all, and I was putting myself back in, in my childhood days, remembering conversations with these people and looking around the room in my mind's eye, and we're seeing all these different faces and going, oh, yeah, and Uncle so-and-so, and I remember this, and I remember that, and I was getting the names correct, and I got emotional. I got a little tenderhearted when I was thinking about it, and I said, that really brings back good memories. And that's where I think a lot of people feel about the prayer they prayed and the aisle right. they walked and the altar that they came down and the pastor that led them to the waters of Jesus. So we've got to really help people understand that that's not where we put our focus. Uh, you know, the Scripture doesn't give it, and even though it may be historical for you and I in our lifetime, it's not historical in the life of the church. And it's even, like you said, it's unbiblical, so that it's wrong, not just non-biblical. It is unbiblical, and I, yeah. that's, that's a really good point. Now, I find in terms of some of the um, some of the. Uh, main biblical defects associated with the sinner's prayer. I, I found that uh, to sum it up, um, four main unbiblical implication. And again, as I always point out, it's sending the wrong message. It's sending unbiblical concepts. The message of unbiblical concepts. And I've counted. Um, I'm sure there's more, but I find that there's four main points to um, the unbiblical nature of this, particularly the sinner's prayer. Because look, and I'm sure you're you're not against someone just merely coming to the altar for prayer or no. coming to the altar for, you know, gosh, I mean that that's a that's a good thing. But we're talking about a an idea which has non-believers um, doing something good, pleasing God in their unregenerate state, which Paul right. says again to coming and saying a string of words in which the decision is the very means of their salvation, which brings me to uh, my first point that I have that I see as unbiblical, and you already mentioned it, and it's simply decisionism. Right. It's a teaching that one's decision causes regeneration. Mm. That is the cause of one being born again. Let me ask you a question. What is, and why is it wrong, baptismal regeneration? Well, because it puts a, a work or a condition in order to be saved. It's not faith alone. It's not in the finished work of Christ. It's in the afterwork of Christ, the man's baptism. Right, and we, we call it baptismal regeneration because right. it teaches uh, you, you do that meritorious ba you know, water baptism. Of course, it's a work. I had a debate with the Church of Christ person, and he was actually, it was an online debate, he was actually trying to assert that, that baptism in faith was not a work. Come on, what are you talking about? You, you got to, I was baptized. I had to stand up. I had to plug my nose. I had to say a string of words. I had to hold my breath. I had to, you know, get out and, and get my strength so I could walk soaking wet down the stairs to the dress. Of course, it's a work. Yeah. <laughs> 
but but baptismal regeneration i would say is heretical because it shares in the atoning work of christ right right it's and that this is something rome teaches and the church of christ and other non-christian non-christian cults right it's um, an act of well, decision right that causes the that causes the life it's the cause of regeneration, whereas decisional regeneration or decisionism really is in the same, the same line of thinking. It teaches when an unbeliever makes a decision to accept Christ as a Savior, God then responds by regenerating him, right? Yeah. By regenerating him, uh, which is through um, this decision. It's the very cause of regeneration. And this whole idea that man does his part, and then after God does his part, does indicate a cooperation with God in salvation, a synergistic system, which is uh, exactly what Roman Catholics uh, believe. It's a cooperation. You're contributing, you're actually contributing a work, your decision, in addition to the work of Christ. Right. That's right. And, that, and that's, that's, that's the message it's sending. Yep. That doesn't work with what we see in Romans 8. It doesn't work with what we see right. in Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2. <laughs> it doesn't work that it says oh, the power right. of God is, the gospel is the power unto salvation, not man's choice. And, mm-hmm. and it'd be different, brother, yeah, if, it, if, if the Bible left it ambiguous. But the Bible actually speaks against the volition of humanity. And calls man utterly sure dead. Sure does. Wow. Good. Because question. what can they? Yeah. What does Christ see in us apart from His blood? He sees total depravity, having no ability to please Him. Right. And it also sends the message that um, your faith is not a gift. It's something that you muster up in your decision. It's something that you manufacture. When right. Philippians one twenty nine, Ephesians two eight, it's a gift. Um, it, it's it's. But we see Scripture that it's it's the result, not the cause of regeneration that's what the Arminians would hold to too that faith in their mind that faith is a cause of them being born again just like the decision would be a cause so my first defect that I see is decisionism that the decision is the very cause of God responding to you and making you born again Mm. Um, the second defect would be, and these aren't necessarily in order, these are just unbiblical implications and biblical defects. The sinner's prayer um, opposes, and you, you alluded to this earlier, the sinner's prayer, by way of implication, completely opposes the biblical teaching of regeneration precedes faith. Why don't you explain what is regeneration that precedes faith, and why am I saying that's the biblical concept that's radically distorted in a sinner's prayer? Right. Well, I mean, if we go to, for example, John 1, and I'm teaching out of John, so there's going to be a lot of John verses fresh in my heart this week. But John 1, it talks about those who were born. This says that in verse 12, I think, it, uh, that yeah. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, but who all, all who did receive him, those who believe in his name, they, they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but the will of God. And the same thing would be true, uh, you know, if, if, if we look at regeneration preceding faith, that means that those who believe on the name of Jesus were born by the Holy Spirit. They were born by God, 
And we see faith not as a work, but faith is a presence of trusting. It's a gift of God whereby the person believes in Christ, trusts, trusts in Christ, and holds fast to the work of Christ. So the center prayer and in, in, in violating regeneration preceding faith, you know, Acts, what is it, Acts uh, 13? Um, 13. That yeah, there 48. were many, there were many, I think it's verse 40 something, there were many who were appointed to eternal life. Second Thessalonians, in the same way, First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been born of God. Romans 8, the golden right. chain, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he just, uh, called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. And so we see Scripture everywhere. Even Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus was one of the most devout and pious men of all of Israel. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, like with the emphatically the teacher of Israel. Like how Doctor yeah. Downey used to say it, the teacher of all Israel. You know, um, and 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 yet he told Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus that he loved the darkness because. His works were dark. He loved that. He would never come into the light because he'd not been born by the Spirit. He'd not been born from above. And that those who are born from above come to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, you know, regeneration precedes faith. And like you talked about with your first point, decisionism, I mean, it's a synergistic false gospel. It's a synergistic false gospel of like Galatia. Uh, where they were adding to the, the 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 work of Christ, this then in that same way would violate the teaching that man is not utterly depraved, uh, that the teaching that man is utterly depraved and must be born again before he can believe. I think that's what right. Uh, so it opposes. That's a problem. <laughs> it it, it uh, so it seriously opposes the biblical teaching. Of regeneration precedes faith, and that's important because it shows that it's the salvation is of God alone. And the first action of God, or the first verb, the first act, is that he regener- He made us alive. That's correct. And what is our, when we're made alive, our response is to have faith. Yes. It's not the other way around. That's right. So faith and, and obedience is the result of regeneration, whereas the sinner's prayer teaches the complete opposite. You mentioned Acts 13, uh, verse 48. Beautiful passage, yes. because when the Gentiles heard that Christ, that, that salvation was not only for the Jews, but also for them, it says they rejoice at the word of God. And only believers can do that. I believe they're, you know, that's a beautiful illustration of regeneration uh, before faith. And then it says they, they glorify the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed... Yes. It's a pluperfect to Tagmanoi to eternal life. What did they do? They believed. That's correct. As many as were appointed. But see, the sinner's prayer completely distorts that. Yeah. It just, you mentioned a beautiful verse, Second Thessalonians 2.13, where mm-hmm. God shows you from the beginning for salvation. In First John 5.1, another beautiful one that shows that we're born again first, and regeneration is synonymous uh, with re- being born above or born again. First um, John five one. What does it say? It says, um, literally, everyone now believing, pass pistuon. Everyone now. That's you and I. That's all the Christians who are believing now. Then the perfect tense is used. Has been 
born of God. And the perfect is antecedent to the, to the participle there. That means if you're believing now, it's because before you believed in that microsecond, you were born again, you were made alive, and the result was believing. Regeneration precedes faith is completely distorted in the, in the sinner's prayer. Yes, that is correct. Mm. Um, my third very important point and I think the third place of oppositions and with the sinner's prayer, why I see it as unbiblical is because it presents a false view, which is alluding, which is um, the same idea to the second point that it, that it distorts regeneration preceding faith. But the third, this third point is the sinner's prayer presents a false view of the state of the unregenerate. Mm. Because scripture teaches before the fall of Adam, man lost his ability to make any good choices, spiritually good choices. Not that he can't make choices, but any spiritually good choices that please God in John six forty four and, and John eight thirty four forty seven, And we have, I mean, scripture, scripture is <laughs> Romans 3, 10, yeah. 3, 18 and 8, 7 and 8, that the unregenerate man cannot, has no ability to come to Christ unless the father draws him. Right. Because as Ephesians 2 says, he's spiritually dead, not sick. He's right. dead. He has, he's not free to worship God. He's not free to come to God, but rather he's a slave to sin, as Jesus says. Right. And his desire, his desires, Christ said in John eight forty four, is, is to do the, his uh, epithumeo, his lust, is to do the will of the devil. And he's held captive by the devil to do his will. Okay, that's the unregenerate man. He has no ability to submit or please God, Romans 8, 7 and 8. Well, the problem is the sinner's prayer, and I was teaching this in my, in my class at the school, um, this very point. What the sinner's prayer implies is that an unregenerate man does have the ability to uh, submit and please God. When Paul says that the mindset in the flesh is hostile, right? Ekthros is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject it to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are, are, are in the flesh or literally possessed by the flesh cannot. It doesn't say choose not. It's a udunamai, no, no ability to please God. But yet the sinner's prayer says you can, because let me ask you a question. If you raise your hand because you want Jesus to come in your heart, it, wouldn't that please God? Well, Paul says you can't do that if you're dead in your sin, because you're not going to want to do that. There's none righteous, not even one. There's no, I love it in Rome. You mentioned Romans three. There's no, Paul says, um, uh, exatone. There's no one seeking out for God. Nobody does good. Not even one. Right. Well, the sinner's prayer says thousands are can seek after and do good and 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 make these great decisions. When when it flatly comes against the scripture of the unregenerate man right. and his deadness. Mm. Goodness. Yeah, the pro that the flesh profits nothing. It is. John six sixty three. The spirit gives life. Mm. The flesh it is a no is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And doesn't that go hand in hand with what Paul says in Romans ten, when he says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the words of Christ, as Jesus taught in John six, you do not have life in you because you do not have the word in you because you do not believe me. 
And I speak, and this is a paraphrase, I speak the Father's words, I do the Father's work, I show the Father's face, basically. <laughs> and I am the bread that comes down from heaven to give light. To give light. Mm. It's uh, when, when Jesus, you know, what the Armenians have to understand is that a slave is not free. I mean, that's, right. that's simple dimple. A slave, and Jesus makes his presentation on how on how much in bondage the unregenerate is under sin or to sin in Rome, in John eight, yeah. and I like what he says in verse forty three. He says rhetorically, "Why don't you understand what I'm saying?" Mm-hmm. And then he answers, "Because u dudomai the word the verb dudomai uh, it's the same same verb in John six forty four." It has to do with ability or power because Jesus says you, you cannot, can. you have no ability right. to hear my word. Mm. He didn't say you choose not to. And then in 47, he, he says, um, he who is from God, hears the words for God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you're not of God, which really tells us the function of church. It's not a breeding ground to just bring our, our you know, bring the, all our non-safe people there and let, you know, pawn it off on the pastor. That's our job. We need to evangelize and praise God if God saves them and then bring them in the church to be bold because they can't hear your word if they come in the church. Yes. You know, they, they can't hear the words of God. And so the, the point is a sinner's prayer um, radically, just like Finney. Uh, opposes the doctrine of total inability or total depravity. Right. Because it teaches that somebody can do things that are spiritually good before right. God. And it denies it denies faith alone in Christ. It denies the fact that God saves us through His grace, His mercy. Um, it, it makes the prayer in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee propitiate to me. Um, it makes that almost mm. laughing stock. Uh, you know, God yeah, is either propitiated, mocks it. it mocks it, it mocks the gospel, and um, and it, it can you know it, it confuses people. We'll talk about that in a minute. You you know you've got some you've got four points before I get on a soapbox. I'll let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, the fourth point. So we saw how I would say it, it's an unbiblical activity being, uh, which is another, uh, I didn't put it down, but it's, it's a bottom line. It's an unbiblical activity bringing into public worship. And that's not good. But the fourth point is that the sinner's prayer, and this is probably one of the points that I hate most about the sinner's prayer slash altar call. The sinner's prayer introduces the idea of a second mediator, Mm. namely the minister. Yeah. Be me and you at the altar. Because we're, because here's what happens. The minister becomes the mediator by directing the non-believer, the unbeliever, before he invites Jesus in his heart to repeat after him the sinner's prayer. To God, though, he's, see, he's repeating to God on your behalf, consisting of repentance and inviting Christ in his heart and so on and so forth. As a result, the minister becomes the go-between, mediating between the sinner and God in prayer. Yes. But passages such as 1 Timothy 2.5 show this is a Romish idea, show right. how unbiblical this idea. It is a Romish idea, yeah. and it's patently false. It's a Roman Catholic idea that's patently false. God does not need assistance from a minister to help us get to Jesus. Right. Um, 
So in in conclusion, these four points, <coughs> number one, just it's decision regeneration, which is putting a work, your decision, a string of words as the very means of your regeneration. Mm-hmm. Number two, it opposes um, uh, regeneration preceding faith, completely distorts and opposes it. And number three, it opposes or distorts the state of the unregenerate. It makes him, it implies that he's not really dead and he has spiritual ability to please God. And number four, it pronotes, promotes the, the Romish idea of a secondary mediator. Mm. And um, that, that, I mean, those, you should make any, those points, those unbiblical points should make any Christian just gasp and, and say, stop in the name of Christ. Stop this nonsense. Right. Stop these unbiblical uh, concepts being promulgated in public worship. Right. Mm. And it's, it's going to be tough. And I know for me, it, it came to me obvious, like I said, in 2004. It just did not feel, and I'm not saying it felt, it did not feel in the practice as though I was being true to Scripture, I could feel the burden of my spirit as I, as I began to lead people through a sinner's prayer, uh, that it was wrong, and the Lord showed me that. And the irony behind it is that I was not saved through such means. God saved me through the hearing and the reading of Scripture as in my childhood, and it was later in my life when someone in in my family came along and continued to press about my faith, and I continued to confess a faith in Christ that God alone had saved me. That you know, that I, that I depended and hoped and trusted that God would bring me to eternity because of what Christ had done. And this, you know, this person being well-meaning said, well, you know, you can nail this down. You can nail this down if you just, if you just pray that, that God would save you. And, and so when we, when we do that type of thing, what happened for me is it, it confused me. And they, they didn't lead me through a sinner's prayer, but I did pray. And I prayed out, you know, prayed out loud, and I remember that. And, and then I was told at the end of that prayer, because you've prayed like that, you know, of course I'd prayed like that dozens of times a day um, at, at, in that season of my life. But because you've prayed like that, now you are able to know for sure that you have eternal life. And so what it became was, a, was an icon of assurance, and that's what we do. And in, and in my evangel- early evangelism days, in my, even before I was 20 years old as a late teenager, older teenager, going out doing open-air preaching and preaching the streets, you know, it was something that everybody would say, okay, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, do you, you, know, you, need to, you need to sincerely repeat these words. You need to sincerely do this. You need to ask for salvation. You need to respond. And so that after a while, the list gets so long of what you're supposed to do but everybody will argue, well, where's my assurance? Well, if our assurance is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ that come from the Scripture, then we don't have any assurance to begin with. I mean, John 3.16 says that right. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only Son. Then those who are believing, whoever, or if you want to be old English, whosoever believes in him would not, should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible promises eternal life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in John 5, the same thing, whoever hears my words and believes in him who believes him who sent me has eternal life. They do not come into judgment but have passed from death to life. Jesus says in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. I mean, uh, Luke writes these things, you and your household. Right, and then, right. of course, Romans 10.9 and, and 10 I mean, we know that God is the one who's done the work of salvation. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who 
causes us to be born again to a living hope from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's an inference of our assurance that we get straight from the Scripture. And then there's also there's this evidential assurance, and that is that we have faith. <laughs> that we have faith in the Lord Jesus, that we're able to, even when we see sin in our lives, which will happen, though God can bring a, bring about change in our life, and he does bring about change in our life in the sense of what some people call obedience, or some others will use the term, quote, progressive sanctification, and we'll have a future podcast about that language uh, in the weeks to come. Right. But, but, you know, there is an evidential assurance that we have because God says in his word through Paul, he says that we know that we are the children of God because the Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit. And where does that witness come from? It comes from the Spirit that speaks through the Word. So the Word of God, when I feel, when I see sin in my life, the Word of God teaches me that he who is my propitiation advocates for me, and his name is Jesus Christ. So that the evidence of my new life is the continual pressing by the Holy Spirit to push back to the inferential evidence of the Word of God. And most importantly, the assurance that we need to teach people about is that there is an internal, and this, this is actually one and the same, but there's an internal witness of the Holy Spirit about us that we know that we are the children of God. Paul would talk about the Spirit of the Lord. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same engine, I- I- image, same image, listen to this, from one degree of glory to another. So that means that we have Praise this God, yeah. glory, the faith in Christ is a glorious a manifestation of his glory. Doesn't Paul say that in Ephesians 1? To the praise of his glorious grace. So the very fact that we believe, we have this elementary assurance of, of God's unfailing love for us. He who is faithful to us. And, and that's where I think that, that the church of Jesus Christ, that pastors need to really start being more students of the Bible than students of tradition. Because this is one tradition that God is not using. This is one tradition that the enemy has put a foothold, uh, a, a, a foothold down inside the assembly of many so-called churches and uh, evangelistic right. ministries. And I know for me, and you could speak to this too, but for me, when I was an itinerant speaker and did a lot of things outside, uh, you know, in different places all over the country, I would go back to the same venues and you'd see the same faces year after year after year coming to faith. And what were we taught to do? We weren't taught to lead them to the gospel by teaching them. We were told that to go back and point to that day of assurance. No, 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 no. You're rededicating your life to Jesus all over again. You're already saved. Remember, you prayed for for salvation. And so it becomes an icon. And the Bible says, keep yourself from idols. So we don't, that, that's sort of my pastoral punch there at the end, at the end of this, um, that yeah. it, it really does cause a major confusion within the local assembly. And um, we could talk, I mean, we've already been talking now 51 minutes on this topic, brother, and I don't feel like we've even gotten started. So in the last few minutes we've got left, what are some things that are on your mind as far as just some encouragement to the pastors who hear this or the church members who hear this and they're still bound up or they're still um, possibly even stuck in a ministry that continues to practice this type of thing? What are some thoughts on that? Well, aside from um, 
all the unbiblical implications. And, and, and we've talked about this before. Even if you get, look, I've been in churches. We, in, in, my, in my days in athletic ministry, you know, as everyone in the world knows now is on the power team. But, you know, we, <laughs> we actually went to John Olsen's, John Hagee's. We saw thousands and thousands come forward. But the, the issue is not that it works or not. Yes. That's irrelevant. Right. Even if it worked, even if you get all these people forward, the question is, is it biblical? Right. And if we're Christians, we want to submit and be devoted to Scripture. And in terms of the does it work or not, many have done uh, uh, statistics showing, um, like they would ask, the, I think D.A. Carson and others did a, did a statistic of those who came forward at the typical altar call and praying the typical sinner's prayer. And they concluded that of all those people who came forward, listen yes. to this, and the question was asked, who of these that were, were that came forward, who of those are attending a church five years later? And the number was between 2 and 4%. Yes. You know what that tells us? Yeah. The artificial method of altar calls and the sinner's prayer at evangelistic revivals clearly are not working. 2 to 4% are in the church Correct. after five years. Right. They're not, they're not working. And my rule is simply this, stay biblical. So pastors and everyone listening who is involved, may be involved in altar calls, number one, we're not suggesting no one's saved. I mean, God ordains the means and the ends. We're not saying that God can't save someone. We're not even, it's not even the issue. Um, nor are we saying that whoever does an altar call, like they're, they're just not saved. No, that's not the issue at all. The issue is... It's unbiblical. The practices are unbiblical, and the message that's being sent is extraordinarily unbiblical. And we have to understand Charles Finney, who really developed the altar call and and the sinner's prayer and all these things, he was rightly labeled as a heretic for denying essential doctrine. He didn't have any problem with the sinner's prayer. He just didn't know scripture. He was heretical. He didn't know scripture. So what I would do, what I would encourage the pastors and particularly people in revivals, because here's the thing, James, and I have friends still in, in different kinds of athletic ministries and big revivals. When you're at a church doing a revival and you, you, you do whatever, and then at the end you, do, you, you, you preach the gospel, mm. here's the thing. You, you, you want to know who those people are that first believe because you want to, I mean, the task of the church and the pastor is to disciple the new converts, right? That's our goal. Well, how do you get to, you know, if you don't do altar calls, because this is what I, uh, the question I, I get all the time. Okay, if I don't do altar calls, how in the world am I going to get the names and numbers? Right? Which <laughs> right. is a very valid, right? right? Yeah. Who, who, do I lead? I suggest- who, do I, who do I disciple now? Right. How, how am I going to get their names and numbers, you know, to disciple and to call them back, to follow through? Um, you know, what I would suggest is I have no problem where the minister asks the congregation after he preaches the gospel, instead of an altar call, sinner's prayer, or instead of a sinner's prayer, to ask, you know, if you heard the gospel tonight and, and, and you put your faith in Christ as Lord and as God in the flesh, the resurrected Savior, you believe that now. Um, I'm going to know, is this your first time? Did you do that tonight? I have no problem with someone asking a question like that. Did you do that tonight? If you did, you know, we want to see who you are because you know us. We don't know you. And then, you know, if you're going to repeat a prayer, 
And I, I mentioned this to people in, in, in these kind of ministries and athletic, like similar to the power team ministries, because the pastors want people to come forward. But instead of doing a sinner's prayer, stay biblical. Turn this unbiblical sinner's prayer to a believer's prayer or a celebration in Thanksgiving. Like, dear Lord God, thank you for saving me. Thank you that on the basis of the merit of your son, that I'm justified on the grounds of his work. I'm justified. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving me the gift of faith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, amen. I mean, now it's a Thanksgiving prayer that I pray all the time. Yes. You, right. you know, I don't have no problem, you know, leading someone to a Thanksgiving prayer and then get those names who, who raise their hand that they believe for the very first time. So you turned it around from something that's very unbiblical to now to something uh, that doesn't have, you know, who wants Christ into your heart. But, ba- you know, but actually, you know, who here based on the proclamation of the gospel put their faith and belief in Christ for the very first time or something similar to that because we got to get their names we want to disciple them yes but we just got to stay biblical stay right. biblical just stay biblical sola gratia stay yes. biblical by grace alone we're saved not by altar calls or, right. or yeah. sinner's prayer and you know when you think back on Finney's day what, what happened and I'm throwing a lot of shade on historical things but what happened is during the first great awakening people were outwardly converted people showed a different zeal for the gospel. And we know, just like the seed and the sower parable, none of that was, not all of that was permanent. God's permanence right. in his regeneration never fails. He preserves his people until the end. But many people are led in some sense through emotionalism. Some of them receive the word and in their cognitive mind, they go, yeah, yeah, I can believe in this. I can love a God like this who loved me and died for me and saved me. But then it's just a matter of time. Are they falling away? The scripture says that the birds come and eat the seeds. The Bible, we talk about this on the, other, the other day on the phone, brother, that the devil comes and snatches the word of God. And in my closing thoughts, I, I bring one of my favorite passages of Scripture to the forefront where Paul is talking to this, you know, really bad church, the church of Corinth, in his second letter, and they've sort of straightened up, and he's encouraged, and he's talking about them. And the question comes up about how they are um, ministers of the covenant of grace and how they are able to... Uh, to see the difference, not in the law and the ministry. What is it? He calls it the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Uh, that, that it was yeah, so yeah. grave that the, the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face because they were ashamed to see the, the reflection of the shining of the glory of God. And so if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, Paul says, how much more so is there glory in the ministry of reconciliation through Christ Jesus? And he talks about having a veiled face. But he then, and I mentioned this text a minute ago, uh, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we're all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Then he says, and I'll, I'll read it so I don't misquote it. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Let's put that in the parentheses there. Altar calls, sinners' prayers, etc. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Let's put that in parentheses. Uh, you know, pragmatism, life lessons, etc. But, he says, verse, verse 
verse 2, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then the question there, Paul answers in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4, is people say, well, what if people aren't coming? What if people aren't believing? What if people aren't, aren't following after Christ? What if people can't see the gospel? Don't we need to do something to help them? Don't we need to do something to encourage them? But Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. See, he says right there that the unbeliever can't see the gospel. He can't believe in the gospel. Right. And he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. I'll give the audience a short history of uh, what we talked about. The God of this world being the enemy, but at the same time, the author of that is God, is the God of heaven. God uses in any means he fe- sees fit, even the angels, even the fallen angels, to do the bidding of reprobation. But it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves. We preach Christ, see, and, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Christ. In verse 6, my favorite spot, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give that big, long, doxological expression of suffering and that the power belongs to God and they're nothing but broken, destroyed, or struck down and dying like lambs to the slaughter. But this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so that is where it ultimately runs for me pastorally for the local church is that we don't need sure. even to have altar calls at all because the power of God through sal- for salvation is sufficiently found, effectually found in the Word of God if we just teach it. I'll tell you one of the practices in, in the last – we don't have a whole lot of time, but one of the last things that I did when – especially with the churches I was in a lot, we need to have some type of indicator if people are. I would ask this question. If any of you were saved today, if God brought salvation to any of you, I would like for you to, and I first started out, I would like for you to slip out and we'll talk after service. Because that way it doesn't make a spectacle of it. And people don't get emotional with it. And then, then I started doing this. Any of you whom God has saved, I want you to call me tomorrow on Monday morning to make an appointment for me to talk with you. You know, and it, it just, it really, it weeded it out. It weeded, and I'm not sure. saying that that's even the right term to use, but it, it, it eliminated this emotionalistic drive. And people are going to hear me say that, and they're going to say, man, that guy does not love the lost. Let me tell you something. I love the lost, and I love the church, and I'm not going to sacrifice truth for either because I love them. And I think that that's what's most important. You hit it on the head, brother. We cannot subrogate scripture and its authority because of something that may be yep. may seem effectual for the sake of our culture because lord have mercy it feels and feels effectual yeah it feels good it right feels good it psychologically feels good. yeah sola feels that's the fifth uh sola i'm the sixth <laughs> the sixth is that, sola. Is that a latin term the <laughs> <laughs> sola <No>. feeling <laughs> sola i don't know we have to look that one up but anyway well, brother, that's well, all the time we have for today. Uh, what are we talking about next week? We talked about a couple of topics on the phone earlier. What what are what are we thinking for next week? Let's see. I think we, um, gosh, what, uh, something we really what, what was. I think we we talked about doing uh, something on sanctification. I think we we're going to talk about uh, this whole idea of progressive sanctification and. Um, 
There's so many terms tagged on sanctification, like synergistic sanctification, progressive sanctification, particular sanctification, definitive sanctification, and the tenses used to define it. There you go. Next week, we'll open a can of worms about the terminology used around sanctification, and we're going to come up with a premise. We're going to start with the premise, words are not heresies, meanings are. So we're going to go, we're going to start with that one. We're going to start with that one. But I I thank you all for listening. Please join us next week. Please also go to TheologyAnswers.com. That is our website that you can get all the information about these podcasts. You can send people there to listen and subscribe. And you can also help support us because there's some equipment that we'd like to buy and there's some things we'd like to produce. So if you want to give a dollar or two dollars a month toward Theology Answers, please do so. Again, we are a podcast in the community of the Christian Podcast Community. And you can go to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com and see many other podcasts that are worth listening to. And until next week, we love you, and we'll talk to you soon.